You are listening to the Breakfasters podcast for the week October 1st to October 5. This week, Jez and I went to the Melbourne show together. We got a show bag. Yes, and Jez had lots of regrets about uh, which show bag she got. Oh, did. Also, we chatted to um, Michael Harden for Food Interlude about eating insects. Yum, yum, yum. And (laughs) uh, we had a chat about homecoming queens. What are they? What are they for? Who knows? <laughs> and we caught up with Stuart Cooper about his new book, Roadies, The Secret History of Australian Rock and Roll. And then Laura Tingle's got a new quarterly essay out, Follow the Leader, Democracy and the Rise of the Strongman. We chatted with her about that. What a week. What a week. You're listening to the best bits of The Breakfasters from 3RRR. I'm hungry. I want something to eat. Time for food interlude. Larissa is still on holidays, but we're very grateful to be joined by Michael Hudden. How are you going, Michael? Very well, thank you. Eating insects. Yes, I thought that's another topic that people want to think about first thing in the morning. (laughs) Sure is. Are you a fan? Uh, yeah, I have I have moments like I, I think they're they're good. You know, there's sort of there's some delicious things out there now that that you can where you can get insects that have been prepared beautifully. So sort of particularly in Australia, it's um, crickets and mealworms and ants that seem to be the main thing that we get to eat here. So, uh, do you like it in the way that mm, it's delicious, or in that oh, this would be good for other things? As in yeah. sustainability. More and... sort of, it's on the sustainability thing, I mm. think. That's kind of where it's coming from. You know, there's sort of, insects are just so worthy um, in terms <laughs> of their environmental credentials. It's sort of like, you know, they kind of, they've got, you know, this a similar amount of protein to, say, beef. Say, cricket has a similar amount of protein to beef, but... At the same time, it sort of uses like a tenth of the of the water and uh, you know the land use and um, you know the degradation of the land and stuff like that is sort of like really minimal when it comes to insects. So there's that sort of thing, and they're sort of super healthy for you as well. So they're sort of Did full of full of proteins, full of like you know if you eat mealworms, they've got more sort of omega three um, pro- good stuff in it than than fish. And, uh, you know, crickets are sort of like, you know, they've got um, mono and polysms, unsaturated, unsaturated fats, and they're full of minerals and fibre and everything. So they're actually really, really good for you. With the cooking of them, though, is it? I've noticed that it often seems like it's all about masking the insect itself, either visually or also, you know, do, they, do you ever eat an insect and taste the insect? Not you can like you know it's sort of like there are sort of like with crickets if you don't they the thing is that they don't have a huge amount of taste mm. so um, crickets are really good um, they're sort of like a textural thing more than anything and they fry up or they, you roast them and something they're, they're quite crunchy but they actually really um, take flavours really well so they're a lot of the time you know they're they're a very popular um, snack in Mexico so they're spiced up there and fried on the streets and stuff and served in paper cones and you eat them like peanuts. And they do have a slightly nutty sort of quality to them, but they're very good at sort of picking up other flavours. It's sort of like something like, say, abalone, that in a way doesn't have any of its own flavour, but it's really good at picking up sauce flavours and it's got a particular texture that people like. So if we're talking about eating insects here in Melbourne, are we talking about it in terms of mimicking the cuisines that have traditionally used insects or are we talking about it more as a kind of hipsterish sort of environmental new new thing? It's a little bit of both. Um, I think, you know, the, the, there's sort of such a pushback against... The, there was, like, insects in restaurants were actually probably 
more prevalent a couple of years ago. And I think that they have a sort of... They, they have that kind of, you know, it's novelty value to them. Yeah. Um, and so they've sort of fallen out of favour a little bit. But, you still, but, but the interesting thing is that they're starting to sort of come in in ways that sort of like... that are, that are kind of acceptable as sort of like the finger line in terms of, in terms of an insect. So that, you know, ants I've, just, I've noticed are coming in and they're ab- absolutely delicious. They've got these tyrant ants which um, have like a real citric... Um, flavour to them, sort of a burst. You wouldn't want to use too many of them, but it's really interesting. So you've got, like, you know, I've been served, say, um, halves of oranges dotted with ants, which looks like a picnic gone wrong. <laughs> but yeah. it's sort of like, but then you're actually putting it into your mouth and they're actually, they're really delicious. So How small are the kind of ants they're cooking? Because they're teeny tiny. They're, hey? they're pretty, they're, they're, the ants basically are often used either live or raw. So oh. they're not really cooking them. So because basically the flavour burst is coming from the abdomen. So it's sort oh. of like you know there's there's a there's a honey like the honey <laughs> ant is is um, absolutely full of delicious. honey, full of yeah it's sweet. So there's a burst of sweetness in there. So they're they're quite intense, but uh, you know when used in the right way, they're they're really delicious. We interviewed someone who was involved in a film about the um, American insect industry and one of the things that came out in that was that they're having real trouble getting infrastructure together to provide restaurants with high quality um, yeah. products is that, is that is, is that a problem here in Australia it is they're sort of like it's very small scale at the moment and the problem you know that sort of and that's sort of like helping its environmental credentials in a way because it's sort of like people are really sort of hands-on there's a woman in Tasmania who's got an insect farm and she is going around to all the restaurants and using their vegetable scraps and their vegetable waste to feed her insects so that's kind of um, you know it's got that sort of environmental stuff but sort of in terms of upscaling it there's worry that you know when you start upscaling it it's all of a sudden you're needing energy and you're needing food and you're needing all these sort of things and so you know there's there's arguments saying that like you know if you want to industrially farm crickets it might end up being the same as industrially farming chickens for example because of the sort of the energy put into to providing them with the food so there's this real push it's like trying to sort of work out how to do it without turning into industrial farming and being just as damaging to the environment yeah. and do you think we're at the point as public in Australia where we are Happy to eat insects? No. Okay. No, I think it's sort of like there's still a disgust element and it's sort of like and the problem with, well, I'll, I'll just go ahead and do it now, is like when you're talking about insects, everybody usually comes out with the grossest thing yeah. that you can find. And so just to let you know... Um, Tarantulas taste like crab. Oh. <laughs> so, we, <laughs> oh, they did something weird to my mouth. Yeah, yeah it's, it's incredible, isn't it? There's just the disgust value is really full on. And like, yeah. I'm telling you right now, I'll swear, hand on heart, I will never eat a tarantula. Um, but you but know, you have to know they taste disgusting, or you just heard. I've just that's from some first-hand information from somebody else, and they said, "Oh no, it wasn't too bad. It tastes like crab." It's like I don't care. Yeah. I actually don't mm. care, you know. Yeah. So, but there is that, like, you know, there still is that disgusting. And even, like, you know, I'm kind of, I've seen and eaten crickets a lot. And, uh, well, not a lot, but, you know, a fair bit. They're a good snack and it's sort of like, and they are, they, they're little insects with, you know, you can see their heads and everything. And But you just pop them into your mouth. They're, they're delicious. They're crunchy. They're, you know, it's just another bar snack. So I think that it's one of those things that it will gradually over time. And I think we will have to start eating more insects because it's uh, like this huge source of protein and it has been and it is at the moment for two billion people around the world it's sort of one of their major sources of protein is eating insects so are there places restaurants here in melbourne who are doing um 
interesting things with insects. If someone, people listening want to go and chow down on some you worms of, or something. You have to go, like, it's it's really, it's sort of, you have to go high-end now. Um, you know, it's sort of Attica is doing some stuff. Um, Sydney, is it's more prevalent in Sydney. Yeah. There sort of seems to be, like, you know, there's a, a restaurant that's opened up there that's doing some really good things, like putting ants on asparagus, oh. which is which is really, really delicious. And Kylie Kwong up in Sydney um, does, you know, she's, she's had bugs on the menu for a while where she's sort of stir-frying them with black beans and soy and that sort of stuff, like a really Asian style. It seems way. like it's a, quite a novelty still. And I like, is there anywhere that's kind of doing it on a regular, like it's on a, a regular menu or is it all kind of... It, the problem with it is it's like the moment that you put bugs on your menu, you attract a lot of attention. Everybody goes, oh, wow, go, go to this cafe and eat mm. bugs, you know, and it's sort of like and they get, you know, they'll get a bit of traffic for about, you know, a week or two weeks or something and then nobody will ever order it again because it's, you know, the novelty value's gone and so mm. they sort of, it drops off the menu, which is what's happened to the places okay. that I've seen it in Melbourne. Best places that really are online, there's a place called Edible Bugs, which is, I think you were saying at the Melbourne, at the show, Melbourne show, she mm. had a vending machine there. Yeah. And uh, she does a lot. She's an entomologist, Sky Blackburn, I think oh. her name is, and she started this business up because of the environmental issues and stuff and she's she's doing um, ants and mealworms and stuff and putting them in chocolate bars and in marshmallows and just sort of snack packs of crickets with sort of, you know, soy and lime and, you know, that sort of I'm stuff. I'm kind of surprised happening. with Melbourne's, you know, food van culture that maybe just fried chicken a crickets in a little cup hasn't taken off. That's really true. Like, I've, I've, I've been thinking the same thing. It's, like, particularly because of the Melbourneian love of Mexican food. Yeah. And, like, you know, and it's a really, really popular thing. Like, if you go to Mexico, you will eat yeah, some insects. Them. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, and they're not bad. You know, they're sort of... I, I actually really like them. You don't look convinced. Oh, no, I, I yeah. did. Oh, no, sorry. <laughs> I, I think I'm still stuck on the tarantula. Yeah, yeah, My yeah. Brain. It will. It will be yeah. there for a while. So, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thanks very much, Michael Harden. I look forward to getting stuck into some insects. Mm, yeah, chomp away. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. You're tuned to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah Rhodes. The Secret History of Australian Rock and Roll. It's a new book out through Hachette. Its author is the legendary music journalist Stuart Coop. He's joining us now. Welcome to Breakfasters. Uh, good morning to all three of you. Okay. Uh, this book is, well, one way to describe it, it's a collection of mini biographies of the people who worked as roadies in the Australian rock industry. How did you go about selecting who you were going to talk to? Because you find some extraordinary characters. Yes, I, I, I didn't, Jeff, know how to write the book and, and I agonised for ages. And, and as, as I went through the process of doing lots of interviews, I interviewed about 60 roadies. I, I could have interviewed 10,000. I could still be interviewing Australian <laughs> road crew members. Um, <laughs> I, I kind of, it dawned on me that what really linked them, aside from being ingenious problem solvers and hard workers, was actually that they're great characters. And so I never intended to write the book chronologically, but I thought I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have it character-driven and then put it in a loose order. So, you know, I go back to I think I've identified well, a claimant for the title of the first roadie, which is uh, a guy called Spider Doyle, who started working with Cole Joy at the Bronte Surf Club in Sydney in 1959. Uh, but I was I was kind of thrilled to to unearth the world's first female roadie, Tana Douglas. 
who worked with um, ACDC. Well, I of mean, all not the a, bands, yeah, as well. Not, not, yeah. not only did she work with AC, I mean, she was a a fifteen year old runaway. Went to Nimbin, um, came down to Sydney with Philippe Petit, the guy who walked the tightrope between the World Trade Center buildings. But before that, he walked the northern pylons of Sydney Harbour Bridge. So she was below catching canisters of film as they were thrown down. Been filmed by James Rickardson, who oh, just got wow. out of jail, and uh, thankfully <laughs> in Borneo, so um, Cambodia, and um, and so. Uh, then that brought her into the Sydney rock and roll scene and then she eventually found her way to Melbourne where Bill Joseph, a very famous Melbourne booking agent, uh, said, oh, there's this band that needs a, you know, a, a roadie, you know, maybe you should go and meet them. So lo and behold, 15-year-old, 16-year-old Tana meets ACDC and becomes... This is a long-winded response to your question, <laughs> I know. Um, but um, so she becomes not just, you know, pushing speaker boxes and everything and she becomes their, their sound person. And the, the bit that floored me in the first interview I did with Tana was I said, uh, so how old were you when you finished with ACDC? And she said, uh, I was almost 18. <gasps> So she'd done two, two years front wow. of house with ACDC before she turned 18. And then, of course, she moved to England, worked with Status Quo and Elton John, then moved across to America and worked with the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Santana. Uh, and she's in Australia at the moment, you know, helping do some, some press and stuff. For, How for did you book. find her? Look, I just asked people. I mean, I was staggered with Tana because, how, you know, are there, are there 873 books about ACDC that don't yeah. mention her? Yeah, totally. You know, and yeah. I'm going, right, world's first female already. A woman, Australian rock and roll, ACDC, front of house. You know, this is not important. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm going, I, I, kind of think, I kind of think this is just a little bit significant. Yeah. Um, so, no, I, getting back to Jeff's question, look, I, I first of all, I, I gained the trust and support of a couple I spent a lot of time in Melbourne because some of the really great characters came from Melbourne and, and I gained the trust of, of Howard Freeman, who is at 70 years of age, still working, um, Scrooge Madigan, still working, um, he worked with Daddy Cool for all of their career. So I, I kind of, it was a bit like, you know, joining the Sopranos, you know, <laughs> you, you, you go to Tony, you go, you know, you go to the big, you know, the made guys and, and so I, look, I got there. Trust, I think because of, you know, the Michael Gadinsky book and the promoters, I have a bit of a reputation for not messing with people and, and being honest with them and, you know. And so I got their trust and, and after that it became, you know, I, I let them guide me. I said, like, who else should I talk to? Who else has done some interesting stuff? And I'd throw names at some of the old timers and they go, nah, not fit to be called a roadie. Great. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> so... This book made me think about the history of Australian rock and roll in, in a couple of different ways. The first thing that really jumped out at me was how incredibly violent it seems to have been. So many of the people that you interview say, yeah, I got into the job because I was good at fighting or... And, and, you know, you talk about... Is it Bob Jones, the karate... Yes, yeah. The karate... What do you call them? School who seemed to play this crucial role. And So why was it so I, violent? That was one of the the things that really staggered me, you know, because I thought I had a bit of a fix on on a roadie's lifestyle. But the repeated stories of of violence um, and what they were subjected to, I mean, a lot of them were very capable of looking after themselves, of course. Surprisingly, they were always the little short guys. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and Called dragons. Uh, uh, someone, someone would say... 
I saw him take out five guys at the back of a gig and I'd look at him and he's like four foot two. And like, <laughs> I go, right. Um, it was staggering for me. I mean, particularly the repeated stories about violence in in regional Australian towns and the fact that they, not exclusively, I mean, they talk about certain, like, venues in Melbourne and Sydney where they say they knew there was going to be trouble. You know, they, they as soon as they saw the worksheet and it said this particular venue, they basically armed themselves ready for what was going to happen. But it was particularly the, the regional towns where they were kind of considered, you know, fair game and sport by, you know, the local idiots who would you know, consume 87 schooners and then think, oh, what are we going to do next? Let's let's beat up the road crew. And, and so the, the, yeah, the, the level of aggression and stuff that they, you know, and, and I, I really, having met them all, I, I would refute any suggestion that they were the instigators of, of this. You know, it was, you know, one of them said to me, you know, how fantastic it was. You know, you're at the end of the night, you're walking down 30 stairs with a W bin on your shoulders and some hero thinks it's a great idea to come up and king hit you from behind whilst all his mates are watching. You know, and, and that great, you know, one of them said, oh, you know, you're up on a 15-foot ladder bringing down a light and a couple of drunk guys think it's a really smart idea to come and start shaking the ladder, yes. you know. And, and so at, at those points I go, why did you keep on doing it? Well, you know? it, it is. Like reading the book you do go, it is a pretty horrific life, I guess, for roadies and there's a lot of drugs and booze and fighting. Was there one thing that linked their personalities? Was there like a character trait that you could identify and go, well, that's what makes you want to live that life? Oh, no, I th- I, th- I think it's a particular sort of person that does want to become a roadie. I think it's a little bit like running away to join the circus. Yeah. And I mean, I think that they're linked by a couple of things. You know, that they are problem solvers. I mean, it, it dawned on me halfway through this book that roadies don't ask if something's possible. You know, they're, they're, the only way they think is how you do it. You know, they, they don't go, uh, we can't patch this cord through this, you know, double-bricked wall. <laughs> you know, that, that's not a, that's something that entertains their brain. It's like, well, what drill's going to put a hole through this yeah. double-brick wall <laughs> and then if we load this up through there and then we double this back through here and then we turn the switch on and pray that the whole building doesn't explode. You know, that's how I just think. And, and look, the other thing is it, they, they are addicted... Well, if they're not addicted when they start, they very quickly become addicted to the lifestyle and particularly the adrenaline of it. Mm. And that's what keeps dragging them back. I think it's that so many of them, they, had, they have two moments that shows that they, they love, depending on which roadie you're talking to. Uh, some of them love the almost zen-like quietness uh, about an hour after a show is finished and it's only them and the security, you know, in the building and it's really quiet, everyone's gone and they're rolling up cords and pushing things in and, and out. And there's that that a lot of them love. But the overriding thing is, and I'm the same, I'm with them, you know, I love that 30 seconds before a show starts. You know, the, all the work's done, well, that part of their day's work is done. Lights go down. I'm still, I'm goosebumps even yeah, thinking yeah, about yeah. it. You know, the lights go down, you just see torches flashing and you just hear this roar building from a crowd just before a show starts. And I had one one um, one guy, Shane Scully, who worked with the church in Australian Crawl and, and he hasn't worked as a roadie for about 20, at least 25 years. He said he still wakes up dreaming of that moment yeah, when wow. the lights go down and there's the, that sort of, you know, crescendo building. So so I think 
you know, they've got to love hard work. I mean, they work ridiculous hours. Mm. Um, but I, I think through all of those, you know, 16-hour drives, you know, the 20-hour days and all that, I, I think it's that showtime moment that, that stays with them. Part of a roadie's life is not just wrangling the equipment but wrangling the musicians. Uh, when you were talking to all these roadies, who came across as either local or international stars as the most difficult prima donna-ish people to work with? Oh, look, I mean, they, there was, a, of course, a litany <laughs> of them. I mean, how long have we got? Um, yeah, I mean, they do, you know, I think a lot of what they do is psychology, you know. I mean, Howard Freeman tells a, a fabulous story about a New York rap artist, uh, you know, where, you know, he, he, he carted armchairs and everything up four flights of stairs to set up you know, this guy's dressing room the way he wanted it and to make him feel, you know, luxurious comfort. He went out and bought champagne, flutes and, you know, all of this stuff that was required. And he said, look, the guy came off and just trashed the room and just had no respect for anything that he'd done. So he said he moved it all back down and the next night there was just four milk crates <laughs> and, <laughs> and a jug of water and he had this caricature on the wall, does this asshole look like anyone you know? And the guy got the message and he said he behaved like a perfect gentle person for the rest of the tour. Ah. Yeah, so they're, um, yeah, and and... I mean, it's the, the, the interesting thing also about roadies is, is they're kind of invisible. Uh, like if we go, I mean, we go to a show, we all go and see, you yeah. know, shows in pubs or, or big big shows and, you know, they may have been there since before the sun came up, you know, when the show finishes at midnight or one o'clock, you know, they've got another five or six hours work to do. Um, but the only time we see them doing a show, except for the sound person and light person who we'll see up the back, the only time we see them during a show is if something screws up. You yeah. know, when the sparks start flying and smoke's emerging from an amp or, you know, bass drum falls over or our nearest and dearest mate who's just had his 18th schooner and thinks it's a really great idea to sing the chorus of the last song <laughs> with the lead singer, that's the only time you start seeing road crew because they're people. But if they've done their job and everything's going really smoothly, you know, they're largely invisible, which is, I think is part of the reason they haven't had as much recognition as I think they deserve. Stuart, just before we let you go, you're doing a few events, including a road crew lunch. What's that about? <laughs> uh, that, look, I found it really moving. We did one in Sydney last week uh, and we're doing one uh, at midday tomorrow at the Thornbury Theatre and it, it, it's, it's open to the public but it, it's, you know, it'll be 85% roadies or music industry people. Um, so, it, look, it's a chance, you know, they wanted to call it, you know, roadies book launch and I said, no, don't do that. Call it a celebration of the Australian road crew. So we're raising money. It goes to Support Act because, you know, one thing we haven't mentioned, you know, Australian road crew have anecdotally over four times the national suicide rate. There's a, there's a hideous mental health toll that accompanies their, their lifestyle. So um, Phil Manning, Ross Wilson and some other people are going to be singing and then Tana Douglas, who I mentioned, and Howard Freeman and a bunch of, um, of other roadies. We're going to be doing a, a panel where we... Tell tall stories and make stuff, <laughs> make stuff up, uh, and everybody comes along. You know, it's a lunch, and they get a they get a copy of the of the roadies book, etc. So that's that's tomorrow. Sounds yeah. like a heap of fun. The book is Roadies: The Secret History of Australian Rock and Roll. It's out through Hashette. We've been talking to its author Stuart Coop. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from Three Triple R.
things. <laughs> a communist creeper. I'll uh, just put up a picture of Jeff. And he looks like he's been photoshopped into a photo. I'll put it on my <laughs> on my personal Instagram. But it's so embarrassing. Anyway, I mean, it's, it's, right. it, it's great. I'll, I'll put I'll it on put, the breakfast. I'm putting on the breakfast as one right now. Anyway, I'm not one to talk much about or have... If someone was to ask me uh, what are some of your regrets, I don't, I don't have any. I'm not really? a person that... Yeah, you're you know, not a regretful person, are I'm you? I'm not a regretful person. Things happen for a reason and it makes you who you are. And it's you so just go. Why with are it. you a calm person to be around? Because I'm regret city. Everything, every second of the day. Oh yes. mate, you yeah. regretted turning into a into a particular driveway to get into a car park yesterday. Yeah, constant regrets. <laughs> just, well. just frustration, <laughs> anger, regret. That is it, the cycle <laughs> of my every minute of my day. I've never seen <laughs> being in a car with you. Is just Jeff. I don't know if you've experienced yes. it. But what a roller coaster of emotions <laughs> that is! <laughs> like every to get a hold of that. every little turn, every you're constantly thinking about what's happening, and you're looking at other things on the road, going, "That person's a bad driver." Meanwhile, you would be right up the ass of somebody <laughs> else, and you go, "Well, it, okay, slow down. Every, everything's fine." Uh, anyway, but yesterday, I've got to say, I absolutely regret my decision of what show bag to buy. What show bag? What were your options and what did oh, you go with? What were her options? options? Jesus, everything, oh. everything. We Too were, many like, options. She, we, we went into, we saved, we were at the show yesterday, if yes. people didn't know, and we saved the show bag shopping to last because mm-hmm. we didn't want to have to lug them around, around all day. Fair yeah. enough. All right. And I'm old enough now to buy my own snacks, so I don't have to just really? eat the snacks out of the show bag. <laughs> old enough to buy my own snacks. <laughs> you know when you're a kid at the show, you had to have the show bag so you could secretly snack. But uh, we did three laps, I reckon, of the big show bag hall and we stood and we pondered and we stared it's and we pondered some more. And I, from the start, just wanted to buy Birdie Beetles, so I already kind of knew what I wanted. But it was very overwhelming. The environment. What what were the contenders? What were the ones that you're oscillating between? I can't even. (laughs) Just all of them. There were so many options. I can't even put all of them into one. Like it was just. Think of a thing as a show bag for it. Yeah. And also, like there were. Oh, there was the expensive. Oh, well, uh, do you know what? I took out the expensive ones. Anything yeah. over like fifteen dollars, I was they've like, got those like thirty-five dollar ones where you get ones. a magazine and a jumper and a hat and you know, like yeah. full. Yeah. yeah, no one wants that. No, out. So well, they were out. Some people do. Anyway, I was what not one of those people. Then it just got into it was just snacks, like just candy and chocolate. That's and then it was like, well, which which ones do you? And then you would get like something. Really nice, but like, but all the good ones that um, would be sold out. So there was some were sold out. That was disappointing. Yeah. So like, I saw there was like Tim Tams. So you get like five packets of Tim Tams plus Tim Tam slippers. I'm like, well, oh. that's no I want slippers, that. right? Sure. Okay. I'd get I'd get that <laughs> yeah. for sure. Sold out. Oh. And then, so that like think I think about what do I really also, want at home? Yeah. While she's thinking, the environment we're in is. Like harried pa- parents who look very stressed, mm. with kids that have clearly been eating too much sugar, screaming about what one of the other kids has and what the other one doesn't, and then pointing at the things and then yelling. It was it's a very stressful a, a rest, environment. A restful environment. To yeah. Make yeah. <laughs> Prams, people, oh. just all all lots of, 
and the lighting, like fluorescent lighting. And music was there. Music. There was music everywhere yesterday, but not good music. Who, just uh, intense music. Just, anyway, and then so a panic attack. Yes, it was, and it was like. Okay, so th- some factors in trying to make the decision of sure. what I wanted to get was like um, I like fun things, yep. you know, I like, oh, but also was thinking about uh, do I really want this thing? Is it going to be useful? Novelty, but yeah. not too novelty. Like yes. oh, one of the ones that was sold out, it is. One of the ones mm. that sold out was the Mega Birdie Beetle, which I wanted, and it came with either, wait for it, a Birdie Beetle basketball, yeah. a Birdie Beetle ice cooler for beers, or a Birdie Beetle. I don't know what the other one was. Oh, maybe a hat or something. Maybe a bum bag or a hat. Hat, hat. Yeah. Sold out. But the cool, we wanted oh. the, the cooler. cool thing, right? Mate, sure. taking that to Meredith, yeah. putting your tinnies in there, going down it's, to the sup. That's exactly what I wanted it for. Yeah. Not, not the hat, for instance. No. No. One of the cooler. The, the cooler, cooler or the basketball. No. You don't like basketball? I'm not sure that I want a birdie beetle basketball, but yeah, so that's just me. This is the issue. You're yeah. walking around thinking, what am I going to get? What am I? And also, here's the other thing that came into it was like, oh, I like a bargain. Sure. Yeah. So were you doing like sums to work out like what the value? Yeah, some, yes. some things were on sale, but it was not clear exactly what was on sale. Like so you could get like it'd be like, you know, get two for, for fifteen dollars or you get you can get four these are like <gasps> And it's two. here's the thing. Mm. Leave so while some were sold out, there were lots of things on sale because it was the last day of the show. So oh, there was there was, ec- there was extra bargains to take yeah. into account. Extra bargains and two for ones. Yeah. All of that. But I didn't anyway, I got two Willy Wonka Willy Wonka show bags because it was one for $12 or two for 15 It was the two for 15 that got me, right? That sounds like a good deal. It, it's a very good deal, but I don't – I'm not interested. <laughs> I want a chocolate. I regret not getting one of the oh. chocolate ones. If I – I wasn't, I wasn't don't, sure. You don't go – I just can't believe you went no chocolate. I said to her a few times, are you sure you don't want a couple of my birdie beetles? I haven't offered you my birdie beetles. What yeah, was, but so because what? it was so hot and all I was imagining was like trying to peel she goes, open a birdie. it'll melt. It was yeah. twenty five degrees. It was and it's hot. spring, but it wasn't going to melt. What, so what was in what was in the Willy Wonka one? Oh, just lots candy. of candy, like oh. you know, all the Willy Wonka, you know, gobstoppers and some sort of and nerds and, and show um, bag shopping. And as a kid, it was all about balance. You spent two weeks working out. You wanted some chips. You'd have to get the right chip one. You wanted some chocolate and you wanted some some, some lollies. So you worked yeah. out exactly how to get those ones. Maybe you wanted some cans of soft drink as well. But you were just you didn't have the preparation. I didn't I, I was not thinking. I'm not used to this show bag. I, I don't think we never went to the show when we were kids. So I'm oh. unaccustomed to this. So if you had your time oh, again, I would absolutely chocolate, dirty beetles. I would I would yeah, I would get a chocolate one. I actually, I would absolutely have got that cooler bag one. I'm disappointed that that was sold out. Yeah, I was disappointed. And then there that. was like the the Milky Bar Kid one with the cowboy hat. I was that almost going to get that, and I thought I don't think I could get away with having that hat. I like it would just sit on a shelf somewhere. <laughs> anyway, and also um, it's white chocolate. I wanted I wanted proper no, chocolate. No, white chocolate's no good. Bought some good licorice though. Oh yeah, we bought some delicious licorice. Yeah, you didn't licorice. bring any of it here. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Have 
You're tuned to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. Follow the leader, Democracy and the Rise of the Strongman is the latest quarterly essay. It's written by the Chief Political Correspondent for the ABC's 7.30, Laura Tingle. She's joining us now. Welcome to Breakfasters. Hello, Breakfasters. Hello. <laughs> How much of this essay about political leadership had you written when Malcolm Turnbull lost his political leadership? And were you surprised by that or did you expect it to be coming? Um, I'd written about 30,000 words of it, uh, but I hadn't put the last... I'd, I'd been putting off uh, writing the very end of it uh, because it travels from Australia overseas and back again and uh, I just needed to let it settle a little bit before I finished it <laughs> off. Uh, did I see this coming? No. Uh, uh, despite having all these years in Canberra, uh, coups always... It's a bit like people dying, even though you know they've got a terminal disease. You just you sort of... It, it's, it's not just denial, but it's just... In the case of political coups, it's... That would be really stupid. Why would they do that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and in this one in particular, this would be against their self-interest. Why would they do that? So uh, while we're all aware of the talk that this would happen and, you know, people muttering to you in the, down the phone and things like that... Uh, I, I, and I think it probably took them by surprise because they didn't expect Malcolm Turnbull himself to bring it on. Uh, speaking of Malcolm Turnbull, recently he described um, his fellow workmates as miserable ghosts. <laughs> um, do, do you think that this just makes him another another abbot? Look, I don't think he's being... Uh, I don't think he's sort of quite engaged in the destruction uh, on the abbot scale. He hasn't sort of got into the industrial level... Destruction, um, but I think what happened with Malcolm Turnbull was, first of all, he was quite zen about it all, a bit philosophical. But uh, as everybody does, they go through stages of grief, and so he's going through his angry stage of yes. grief at the moment. And uh, if people ask him for an opinion or whatever, he's giving it. Um, but I, I suspect he will not keep it up. Uh, I suspect he could. Or apart from anything else, I think he's done the right thing and got out, which I think probably. Tony Abbott should probably do as well unless he's got something positive to contribute. Central to your essay is a distinction that the academic Ronald Heifetz makes between leadership, power and formal authority. Mm. How does Heifetz define leadership? Uh, he defines leadership as something that you do uh, and that is that it's not a question of having the vision thing alone. It's about uh, having guiding a community through a change and it starts with saying, okay, guys, this is what we're going to do, uh, and then you know, sort of embracing as much of the community as you can to get that change and actually sort of running the change as well as the idea to an end point. It might not be a good change. Uh, in fact, he would describe what Adolf Hitler did as, as an example of something that was actually catastrophic, but that's the process, uh, and that's different from... I mean, I, I keep saying that the leadership coups that we talk about with the Prime Minister over the last few years give leadership a bad name because they're not leadership coups, they're power coups or they're battles for power. Uh, and, and that's different too to leadership. So who then would be a Heifetzian leader in um, recent Australian politics? Who is it who would fit this criteria that he gives? Uh, it's... I think you, it's. I suppose I tend to think of uh, leaders who do Heifetzian moments, um, and uh, an obvious one would be uh, Paul Keating, uh, because 
uh, he not only... Uh, pe people think of him as crash through or crash, but in fact he always said you have to bring the mob with you. So he'd propose an idea, he'd uh, engage people to try to get a, a, a negotiated outcome or a consensus on it. He'd be prepared to say, actually, we've got this a bit wrong, we're going to change direction again, and he would uh, persuade people that this is what you had to do. And not everybody thought it was a good idea or they'd be a bit grudging about it, but they could basically endorse it as the best outcome for the community at the time. So that's one example. You could argue uh, at a smaller scale in, in, in the most recent times that... Uh, that Malcolm Turnbull and Josh Frydenberg tried to be good Heifetzian leaders with the National Energy Guarantee, which was, you know, a pretty weak sort of outcome without without doubt, but they'd actually got a, an incredibly wide consensus across the community that, yes, let's just do this for God's sake, but in, in a handful of people in the Coalition Party Room, for fairly vindictive reasons, uh, you know, made the whole thing collapse. Of course. You also talk about the rise of the strong man in leaders such as Trump. Mm. Do you think that Scott Morrison is trying to be a strong man? I think he's trying not to be a strong man in the sense that the, my definition of strong man in a democracy is somebody who says, look, you know, you know box of apples plus Tasmania, I, I, I will make Australia great again or I will make America great again, just vote for me, not too many details. Uh, but it does require this sort of almost authoritarian belief in the leader and at the moment Scott Morrison's just wandering around trying to look very hokey and un, un, unthreatening. You know? <laughs> but it's weird because there's, there's elements of Trump in that, in the kind of every man appeal and the cap. And It is, but he's not, he's not proposing a radical uh, transformation. He's not saying he's going to overturn the system yeah. or anything like that. He's, he's, I think he's sort of in a, a bit of a retreat from that. Um, uh, he's trying to look like he's... Uh, restoring order to the government for those who think that the government wasn't getting anywhere. But the, he, if you think about it, he doesn't actually have an agenda at this stage. Mm. He's cleaning up sort of uh, as many barnacles as they say in politics as he can, uh, knowing that there's an election coming up, uh, which means he's, you know, sort of doing deals with the Catholic schools. Any of the things that are a problem for the government, he's trying to just sort of quieten them down. So that's different from being a strong man. Mm. You used Keating as an example before, and he's often a name who, that, yeah. that gets raised in this context. But, of course, Keating was in politics at a time when political parties, trade unions, other social institutions had far more weight mm. than they did. Now, of course, you know, he was part of the Labor Accord. Mm. All of those in institutional authorities are in severe decline. That's one of the points that you make in the essay. How do we explain this phenomenon? It seems to be something happening all around the world yeah. where these social institutions are collapsing in a way that makes leadership far more difficult. Well, it, it's a combination of things. I mean, the churches are the most spectacular example of uh, co collapsing institutions. Others uh, have basically been under assault. You could sort of say what's happened to the media uh, in the last few years in particular, which is partly a result of commercial pressures, but pol politicians themselves have made have started an assault on the other institutions in society, even if it's just downgrading their importance. Mm -hmm. um, and that's you know, change the relative weight of, uh, of politicians and others in the community to discuss these issues that are of importance to all of us. You finished the essay by suggesting we should be looking for strong leaders, not strong men. Do you think we are going to get them? I mean, it seems likely Labor will win the next election, but Shorten is quite an unpopular figure with no particularly clear vision. Are we just heading for more of the same? 
He's an unpopular figure uh, and I think one of the really big tests is, uh, you know, does popularity matter? Um, He's not sort of a a great authority figure, if you like, but I think he's got a very good team around him of uh, of front benches and one of the things I say in the the essay is that, uh, you know, you need to get back to that idea of a government rather than a leader, collective government, you know, cabinet government. And so that will be a real test of these ideas that I'm putting forward because I think all of those other people in the Labor Party are determined to be disciplined about the way they behave, uh, which, you know, will keep the government coherent. Um, And they're also determined that they're going to be listened to uh, so that you're not going to see quite so much focus or... uh, sort of power in the hands of, of uh, a Labor Prime Minister as, you, as you've as you seen emerge in the coalition model over the last five years. The quarterly essay is entitled Follow the Leader, Democracy and the Rise of the Strongman. It's written by the ABC's 7.30 Chief Political Correspondent, Laura Tinkle. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for your interest. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. You're listening to Breakfasters here on Triple R. Jeff, tell us about that um, homecoming queen story. Yeah, I was going to put this in the news. In Michigan, students, one particular student is in big trouble because they brought marijuana-laced brownies to school, which... I can't believe that happens outside of like a late 90s teen film. Mm. It's so much more a late 90s teen film because the reason they did it was they were trying to get more votes for the homecoming. Oh, my God, really? (laughs) So it was bribes. It was Stephanie Kay. (laughs) Yeah, I can't, you can't even hear the words "homecoming queen" without thinking about like a nineties teen movie. Yeah, You're, it's almost like I can't believe they really exist. In fact, I, I was talking to Geraldine about this off. I don't know what they do. What, uh, get a crown, but then, then yeah, no, it's, they organise a dance or something. Is no, that, no, no. The work is the work is already done. I I lived in America for a year, so I went to a homecoming. Um, I'm sorry, excuse me. When did you live in America for you? You're such a liar. <laughs> oh, my God. I forgot. How have we got to this point in our uh, three years into this show and you just dropped this year you lived in America? No, yeah, I didn't live in America. I looked, I've been reading on Wikipedia. <laughs> I can't believe you just tried to do that. It's like just shattering the whole compact of the show's Could you imagine? Doing. I know. I nearly spiral into uh, existential... Crisis then. I was when I was thinking <laughs> when I was thinking about it. I thought there's going to be two reactions, either <laughs> Sarah, uh, both from you, Sarah, and it was going to be, how did we not know that? Like, or it was going to be that's not real. Stop lying. Anyway, we've got a bit of both. <laughs> um, so, but basically, it's homecoming. Uh, it's. They traditionally nominate students who have done a lot to contribute to their school. Then students vote for members um, of the court from the nominees once homecoming court. Anyway, so they've already done their work. Oh, so it's so, like a popularity. It's but like it who's the a, most popular person. It's essentially yeah. popularity though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. To, to even to make this story even more of a teen movie, where they were, what they were doing with these um, doped up brownies, they were putting them in goodie bags for the football team. Yes, because homecoming happens Isn't after. Isn't that a bad thing? Yeah, you'd think so. Well, I, yeah. I, I, well, this little, is... like that, I don't think that was like sort of. I think the football players knew what they were getting. I don't think they were like oh, drugging them before they went okay, out to play right. football. Playing football very slowly. Uh, the um, <laughs> and hilariously because because the difference between homecoming is it. 
like I was trying to figure out what's the difference between homecoming and a prom. Yeah. So the homecoming, it's basically all the school will go to that. Oh. And it will usually happen after a big sporting event, usually I football. I thought it was the same as oh. a prom. So is that why, like, it's a homecoming, like the team is coming yeah, home? Yeah, yeah. So it happens oh. around this time, so late September, early October, when everyone's coming back to school. From the summer break? Yes, from the summer break. So, you know... New school year, and then they have a like a, there'll be a big um, and usually the team will play like a, a like it'll be like a guaranteed win, like they'll play another school from like a, a lower fake match. Yeah, oh, that's a bit weird. Because well, they want to win, so they can be oh how great are we? Uh, okay. It's like the Harlem Globetrotters playing the Washington Generals. Yes, sure, oh, yeah, rigged. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All, all of that. You would have known that was rigged from the start. Um, Sarah, you were the uh, social oh my justice God. captain. <laughs> Do we need to talk about this? How did you How did you get to become the so, social justice captain? Yeah, how what many, did you do for that? How many marijuana laced brownies did you have to get? Yeah, I don't know. I kind of I can't even remember. So, so I think that we had captains at our school in Year Twelve. Mm. They were kind of the equivalent of prefects. If we'd been a fancier school, maybe you'd be called a prefect. Oh, you weren't. You didn't have prefects at your school. No, they, we we were the equivalent of prefects. Okay. So you had the captain, vice captain, and then you had the then you had the captains of various. Things, different things. Like there was a religious captain and there was a religion captain and religious there was captain. Yeah, and then there you was disappointed like a, you missed out on that one. There life? was a media captain. My sister was a religious captain as well. Something kind of weird about that. Mm. Well but also the reason you did it was because you got some time out from things as well. So you used to have to go to meetings and have kind of got out of some tasks at school. Did you get a badge? I got a badge. I don't know why. I actually didn't want to do it. I was in year twelve I was I was I was not so interested in kind of being a prefect. That wasn't really where my head was at. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my teachers who, you know, really believed in me and thought that it would oh. be good for me to be social justice captain said, I think you should go, you should do this. And I kind of felt guilty and I had to do a speech and I was I was really I, don't know, I was really nervous. I remember shaking heaps, but I don't even know what I did a speech about. Was it, it, who vote, was it voted for? Student body, like out, sorry, like the year, of the year 12s. And was it respected? Was it something everyone wanted to do? Or was it something that was sort of thought a bit? No, it was mm, neither. Surely everyone wants to be school Just captain. neither. Yeah, like isn't like school Don't captain. Know, does everyone want to be religious captain though? Yeah, it wasn't no, because everyone wants a bad. It was. Ne- I don't know. How to explain it. It kind of wasn't taken seriously. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, that's like, what I was kind of because we weren't yeah. really yeah. a fancy school. It was just like, oh yeah, okay, you're social justice captain. That's great. Yeah. You know, like what did the religious captain do? Take like up lead the, the prayers at church. Oh, yeah. yeah. And if ever there was someone coming. Ooh, it? If, yeah, no. If it, but my sister was not very religious. Like, it was quite funny that she did it. I think she almost did it in a way that oh, was. Ironic. Maybe a little bit ironic. I don't know. Unless I've misunderstood that whole period of her life. <laughs> ironic <laughs> religious captain. <laughs> I feel like Praise I would... be to God. I would have loved to have been. Religious captain. I reckon I would have been really good at it. Yeah, you would have. You were super religious. Did you not? You weren't captain no, of anything? No, not about being religious. It's about I reckon I, I, I love the idea of um, doing leading the prayers, oh, like doing yeah. a reading. Prayers Loved the faithful. Because it. it's just about performing. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah, it is. Centre stage. Yeah. Up there. I've got this, guys. Ready? Bringing in the offertory, the gifts. Loved it. Yep. Liturgical dancing. All maybe of leading it. it. Yeah. Did you have a a favourite bit that you used to read out? It was like your party, religious party trick. 
<laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> I don't really know. Like you could have read I something. I actually don't understand that question like in any way whatsoever. you could have something from the Bible, maybe you've got like a particular <laughs> bit that's you. Do we have a... I don't... <laughs> I don't know what you did. <laughs> like a funny bit, like a bit where you... It's like your party turn. It's like your favourite chapter that, you know, you get called out to I do a reading and this is the one that you always do. Oh, yeah. No, we never got to... You never get to choose your reading. But And, and it's not like we went to parties and went, sit down, everybody. I've got to... You pull out the Bible. <laughs> have I got a bit for you? If you're a religious captain, I feel you'd have to do that. So Jesus, Peter and Paul walk into a bar. Jeff, were you captain of anything? No, I... I suppose we had that. I can't remember whether we had prefects or I think no, we had head boy and head school. We mm. head boy head, but I don't think we had prefects. Or if we did, I think it might have been like a bit like what you were saying, like Sarah, fake that it prefects. wasn't wasn't really taken yeah. seriously. Like Maybe. I, I spent a lot of my time smoking in alleys. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it can't have been that <laughs> It's a kind of social yeah. justice. <laughs> I yeah. I, miss, I remember missing out on being prefect and I was devastated. Really? Yeah, I really, was it really vo- Was yours it. voted on? Yeah, voted on. And I, and I still to this day think it was rigged. I think the, the, um, the, the school didn't want me to be a prefect. Why? Well, I think they maybe thought that I couldn't handle it. I did leave that school and go to another school. So they were right. Not because of it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I you know because I, I I repeated um, year eleven I wasn't I wasn't because uh. I and I think the school thought that I wasn't capable of because I wasn't capable of studying properly that they thought too much I, responsibility yeah I can remember being so in year twelve like I was actually quite good at studying but I was like a, like bad as well do you know not bad but like uh. I was a bit rebellious as well but I was good at my work but I remember not being able to handle being social justice captain because it was too much extra pressure mm. for me. And the social justice captain the year before me had done, had organised like marches for reconciliation that she'd got, you know, all of these spe- speakers had come to the school. And then I used to sit in these meetings that would have once every three weeks or something with a folder, like my social justice captain, and I'd open it and all it was full <laughs> was paper, empty paper. And I'd say, what's on the agenda, Sarah? And I'd look down at this empty paper and just go... Oh, <laughs> quite weak this oh, week. Not, <laughs> not much, much happening. Social, not much social justice. Uh, happening not this much week. justice occurring. Here, have a marijuana lace <laughs> brownie. <laughs> this has been a podcast from Three Triple R, one hundred two point seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.